Hi, I'm Gail Trotter, host of Write in DC. Thank you so much for joining me today. My goal is to keep you informed and to be your advocate in Washington, DC. I've shared with you that I've been working on a book about our Bill of Rights. And to that end, I'm doing a lot of research on current issues, on attacks to our freedoms. And I wanna share with you on this podcast some news stories that got my attention this week that I wanna inform you about to educate you about what's going on on our fundamental freedoms Please subscribe to this podcast. I also have a YouTube show. You can find me at The Gail Trotter Show on YouTube. Feel free to subscribe to that as well. I'm also hosting a clubhouse discussion on Tuesday, April 20th, with Anastasia Bowden about attacks to uh, our fundamental freedoms as well. I hope you'll join for that. You can visit my website, gailtrotter.com. You can follow me on Twitter, Gail Trotter. You can like me on Facebook. You can follow me on Instagram. And I appreciate all of your support and all the feedback and comments I get. I read everyone, and it really helps me to determine what you all are interested in hearing about from me. And I just want to thank you for the support that you've given me and the great ideas that many of you give me on topics to look at or uh, approaches to take to the way that I cover different uh, subject matter. So starting us off, The First Amendment is always a good place to start. And this interesting uh, situation in Evansdale came up that caught my attention. Uh, The title of the article is Offensive Flag in Evansdale Protected by Freedom of Speech Laws. And the reason I wanna talk to you all about this today because it gets to a fundamental part of our First Amendment. The core of our First Amendment is political speech, and that is something that the framers had in mind when they adopted the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and they were ratified. It was this idea that if we are to have a republic, if we are to have a free society, and if we want voters to be informed so that they can express what type of government they want over them because as i've said many times politics is how we order our lives together and so for voters they need to have information and the core protection of our first amendment is political speech because how can you make informed political decisions unless you have available to you a broad spectrum of ideas and proposals and policies and reactions to ideas proposals and policies So back to this article about what's going on in Evansdale. I'll read from the article. A resident of the home at 524 Evans Road is flying a flag with profane language and an anti-Joe Biden sentiment under the United States flag. It reads, quote, expletive Biden, an expletive you for voting for him. Now, obviously, it doesn't say expletive. It has a different word there, but I'm sure you can use your imagination and think of what that word is. And the article reports that the Evansdale Police Department received multiple complaints about the Biden flag, which some residents find offensive. And the police chief said it's protected by the First Amendment and there's not much that can be done about it. 
And it's definitely protected speech, says the mayor. It's definitely offensive to many of our residents. Politics aside, offensive language is offensive language. So that's what the mayor is saying. The police department has said it's protected by the First Amendment. And one of the attorneys in the state says that it's not considered obscene under Iowa Code Chapter 728. And if you read the, I won't, I won't subject you to hearing this particular statute about what constitutes obscene material. But if you have a prurient interest, you would understand what is covered by this uh, statute. So this really was caught my eye and was interesting to me because we're seeing a lot of this right now. There's a lot of anger in our country and there's a lot of frustration that people feel like they haven't been able to get their point across or they're not being listened to. And you're going to have a lot of these instances where people use speech to say how upset they are about the current situation. And it's constitutionally protected. And the article reminds us of a Supreme Court case from the 1960s where a guy wore a jacket into a courthouse that said F the draft, except it wasn't F, it was the word. And he was charged with disturbing the peace for wearing this jacket in a courthouse. And the Supreme Court struck that down. Uh, in the case, it talked about how political speech is at the core of the First Amendment. And it's very interesting because uh, you could say, and people argue that saying F the draft or F Biden doesn't actually communicate any idea. It doesn't communicate anything helpful for the body politic. It's not informed. It's not based on data. It's just emotional. It is merely designed to upset and offend people. And I think you would be right. But there is power in that message. And that is why the Supreme Court protects that kind of message under our First Amendment. And you think about it, if there's language that is not offensive, that's in some sort of anodyne way distributed or said on a flag, on a sign, in a yard, Nobody's going to make a big deal out of that because it doesn't offend anybody. And it's not something that our system needs to protect because it's not something that is objected to. But in this case, uh, also think about the situation where if the sign said the opposite, expletive Trump, expletive anybody who voted for Trump. And you can see that it would offend some people. It would not offend other people. And the Constitution and the Supreme Court have to be neutral on these issues because they are applying a standard that applies to speech generally. And speech, as you know, is not just what we say. It can be messages. It can be uh, banners. It can be even flag burning. That was held by the Supreme Court to be protected speech. So I think we need to keep an eye on what's going on with our First Amendment, because there are certainly going to be more challenges, not just by citizens, but also by local, state, and the federal government trying to limit the First Amendment rights of American citizens. And while our Second Amendment 
undergirds all of our other rights, our First Amendment is a core part of how we're able to govern ourselves. And if we can't persuade our fellow voters, our fellow citizens of the rightness of our preferred policy positions or candidates, then we have a very weakened political system. Another article that caught my eye this week is about the Florida legislature passing an anti-protest bill. And this article talks about how this author is opposed to an anti-protest bill because of this issue about the, the First Amendment. You know that the First Amendment promises a right to the people to assemble and to petition the government. And we had a lot of wry comments this summer about CNN's characterization of rioting being mostly peaceful protests. But this is a real concern. When you have people gathered together to express discontent with their government, uh, assembling and protesting, certainly that can devolve into a mob. And mobs are not known for uh, real strong self-reflection. Instead, it becomes sort of a beast unto itself. And there is a need in our society to make sure that while we allow peaceful protesting, of course, not only is it protected under the First Amendment, but it's also an excellent way to assure that our government officials are held accountable for their actions. We also understand that you can't have a system that allows people to, under the guise of political protest, to injure people. I remember David Dorn from last summer, the elderly gentleman who was trying to help provide security for one of the stores, I believe it was in St. Louis, when the rioting took place, and he lost his life. And you might remember seeing his family at the Republican convention this summer, and it was just heartbreaking breaking to think that someone of such an esteemed reputation who had served his community for decades, who had a loving family behind him, he became a victim of the mob, of these people characterized as peaceful protesters who ended up using that for their own ends. And clearly shooting David Dorn had nothing to do with any protected uh, ability under the First Amendment to petition the government. And that is what this Florida legislation is trying to prevent. The proposal called Combating Public Disorder, according to this article, said that it would create a new crime in Florida of mob intimidation, it would enhance penalties for riot-related looting and violence, and create an affirmative defense for ind individuals who injure or kill violent protesters. You might remember this summer that there were situations across the country where government did not protect the people against this rioting. There were situations not only where stores and businesses and homes were broken into, but also uh, situations where the owners of these businesses or employees would defend their livelihoods because that was something that their families depended on, their communities depended on these stores too. And so you can understand 
why the Florida legislators would want to take action to try and prevent this in the future. I don't know whether this is a good idea. I don't know whether it would be effective at uh, creating disincentives for protesters to make sure they don't riot, to make sure that they draw the line at protesting and yelling instead of actually breaking things and stealing things and intimidating people and hurting people. Who knows? We don't know. But the legislators of Florida want to make sure that they're doing something because no one was benefited by what happened this summer, even those who say that it was a natural outlet for anger and uh, things that they were upset about, the truth is that it not only harmed those communities and harmed the people who were the victims of this brutality, it also harmed community relations. I think it is something that has further divided our nation at a time when we're undergoing the trials of a pandemic and political polarization, which is an overused term that I find highly annoying. But it is there is truth that there are very strong holders of opinions on both sides of the political spectrum. And, and actually, they're not just two sides of the political spectrum. There are many different sides of the political spectrum. So when you think about what's going on in Florida, you question, well, is this something that the Supreme Court if it if this law gets uh, used to try and thwart rioting after political protests, is this something that the Supreme Court would strike down based on the First Amendment? Uh, one of the Florida legislators, the sponsor of the bill, said, quote, what this bill does not protect is violence. Rights have limits, and violence is where the line is drawn. This bill is about preventing violence. And the bill apparently also had some penalties for destruction of memorials. You might remember all of those very vivid video images this summer of crowds of people tearing down uh, memorials that uh, to people that they didn't like or not realizing who the memorial was to the statue and pulling it down just in sort of a heedless, thoughtless manner as part of a larger effort to use mob rule to affect things that should be done through our elected representatives. It was interesting, too, because uh, it creates more, it would create a new felony crime of aggravated rioting that carries a sentence of up to 15 years in prison. Now, you might say, well, why, why would we do this? We already have, we already have uh, statutes against destruction, intimidation, murder, violence, uh, property damage, and we don't know. We don't know if this would be enough to deter the kind of cr criminal behavior that we saw last summer, but as I said, I think a lot of states around the country are trying to figure out what they can do to prevent this from happening again, because it's not something that creates social harmony, and it's something that is really devastating to the communities where this occurs. So if you think about this in relation to Florida, I suspect that it would be hard for the Supreme Court to strike this down 
It also makes me think a little bit about the hate crime legislation that we have across the country that puts additional penalties onto certain felonies if uh, different things are shown as the motivation for the crime. And so uh, this is a slightly analogous to that in the sense that it's taking something, some of these things which are already illegal and enhancing enhancing the penalties if it is part of a mob action. So we'll keep an eye on that for you. I think that's going to be a very interesting case to see. It's not a case yet, but legislation and see how it, it goes through and if other states start trying to do the same thing. So another core right under our First Amendment, obviously, is the free exercise of religion. And I have covered this at great length on this podcast over the last 12 plus months that we've been dealing with emergency powers of governors across the country to try and tamp down on religious exercise. And you might have heard that last week the Supreme Court uh, released a decision basically striking down what the California governor has done in having separate rules for uh, the free exercise of religion in California by giving exceptions to all sorts of other gatherings, but holding the free exercise of religion to a higher government control standard in the sense of not allowing indoor gatherings for things like Bible studies or home churches or any kind of spiritual thing. And I just got to share with you, I just find it crazy, crazy that we have seen place after place after place around this country not deeming religion essential, essential during a pandemic in which we have lost over 500,000 human souls. If there is not a more important time for religion and comfort in our lifetimes, I cannot think of one. Maybe 9-11. That was fewer people who perished because of 9-11, but certainly that was psychically injurious to the entire country in a way that Americans had not uh, had not experienced since Pearl Harbor. But except for 9-11, I can't think of a time in my lifetime where there has been more need for people to seek spiritual comfort than in the last 12 months. And for some reason, these governors seem to have it out for religious practice and adherence of religion. And they are holding these religious practices to a different standard than they do for some of the groups that lobby them and some of the groups that they have connections with. And in this case, there were there were two people, Pastor Jeremy Wong and Karen Bush and other faith traditions who sued California to relieve them from this restriction, which, as you know, has been going on now for more than 12 months. So this is not uh, people saying, oh, we're not willing to go along with the program for 15 days so that we can stop this. No, this is something that is really changing fundamental ways that we live our lives. And for 
these two people who sued, Wong and Bush, it says they were more than willing to hold their Bible studies and prayer meetings safely, requiring attendees to wear masks, socially distance, and stay away if symptomatic. But the state refused to allow an accommodation for genuine religious gatherings. They were willing to even hold it in the backyards, but the state's gatherings guidelines prohibited or sharply restricted outdoor gatherings as well, even in counties where viral spread was minimal or non-existent. So when you think about this, the state canceled a lot of things, which I think there are problems with a lot of the cancellations and the restrictions that weren't related to the First Amendment, that aren't protected by our Bill of Rights. Uh, but that's a topic for another day. But when you think about the cancellations and the restrictions and the penalties that would be imposed on practitioners of faith because of the emergency governor orders, you think about this and it is just mind boggling because the government should not be able to impinge on the free exercise of religion particularly when they are granting exceptions to other things that are not protected by an amendment of our Constitution. So, for example, the state allowed dozens or hundreds of people to congregate indoors in buses, trains, and airports. Government offices and favored businesses where people gather in proximity, in close proximity, are also allowed to operate. And thankfully, because the Supreme Court composition has changed to give more weight to an originalist interpretation of the Constitution, you are seeing that there is more respect for the freedom of religion of all Americans. And that could be Sikhs, that could be Muslims, that could be Jews, that could be Christians, that could be whatever version, Native American worship, whatever version of faith that people have that they need to call on even more during this pandemic. And you look at the way the Supreme Court has been ruling on these issues, while it's not enough to protect everyone's rights, and as I like to drive home, the Supreme Court only takes up a few cases every year, and we cannot rely on the Supreme Court to protect our rights. We have to insist on the exercise of our rights and not rely on the Supreme Court to rescue us from bad legislation and bad governors. When you look, though, at Donald Trump's promises before he was elected president, he talked about how important free exercise of religion was. And he talked about appointing justices for vacancies on the Supreme Court and the federal bench. He had more than 200 uh, confirmations of judges on the lower courts, which make all the decisions that feed into the Supreme Court. He made that promise that he would put people on the bench who respected the rule of law, who were independent, and who would make sure that they upheld our Constitution. And I think you're seeing the fruits of that now in these cases that are being decided by the Supreme Court. Now, I want to give you the other side of it. Uh, there's some articles in the New York Times going crazy over the Supreme Court decision. Uh, the title of one article is, The Supreme Court is Making New Law in the Shadows. 
The justices are defying their procedural rules to rewrite the Constitution. This is a piece by Stephen Vladek, who is a professor at the University of Texas School of Law, where he teaches courses on the federal courts and constitutional law, and he co-hosts a podcast on national security law. And it's an interesting article because this lawyer is make or professor, law professor, is making the argument that they did it the wrong way. Essentially, the Supreme Court did it the wrong way, and the the theory that they're adopting to rule in favor of these uh, religious people who want to be able to meet under the same conditions that other people who have exceptions can meet, this professor is saying this is wrong because they should not be prioritizing the First Amendment over other activities. And it is really shocking to me that this professor would candidly say this in an op-ed for everyone to read in the New York Times, talking about how essentially the First Amendment should not get uh, preferential treatment. And of course it should. That's why it's in the, the Bill of Rights in the first place. It's not just general regulation that we have by government. And it's very interesting because if you look at the end of this op-ed, it's almost like they're trying, the left, they're trying to make this argument for the reform of the Supreme Court. And so here he's saying the Supreme Court is not following its procedure. And then the very last paragraph of this op-ed, he, he writes, whatever, whatever other topics President Biden's much ballyhooed commission on Supreme Court reform intends to study, the growing use and abuse of the shadow docket ought to be high on its list. So he's saying that this is pernicious and that it is going against fundamental principles of judicial review. And it's a very weak argument. And it's fascinating, too, because if you turn this around and made the issue abortion and not religious faith and religious exercise, you know absolutely the left would be so happy about this that they would, you know, even though abortion is not in the black and white text of our Bill of Rights, like the First Amendment is, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of religion or establishing a religion. And I think that is a very important point to see how different this would be, because the left is happy to get rid of star stare decisis. They are happy to get rid of so many procedural uh, traditions that we have as long as it results in the right decision. And it's actually a pretty weak argument to say that this is a procedural defect too. So then there's another article in Slate, the title of which is The Supreme Court Broke Its Own Rules to Radically Redefine Religious Liberty. And this is an article by Mark Joseph Stern, and he is almost hysterical. He's so upset in this op-ed, and he talks about essentially how ridiculous it is to make the argument that if Californians can get pedicures, they must also be permitted to spend hours in close quarters discussing the Bible. And he, this is an interview with two of these uh, law professors as well. And 
it essentially is trying to make the case that this Supreme Court decision is going against the theory of interpretation of the First Amendment from a prior Supreme Court decision, which is so funny because the left likes to hold up old decisions that they agree with, but then if an old decision they don't don't agree with, then they start mouthing off about the living Constitution. But here, the only argument that they feel like they can make is that the Supreme Court is going against its traditions, which you know then that is a very weak argument to make because it is very hypocritical, hypocritical of the left to make that argument. And it this article also criticizes the court for having so much respect for Americans' exercise of religion. So I, th- I think that just kind of shows where the New York Times writers are coming from, the people who wrote write op-eds that are published by the New York Times. And we have definitely seen in this country the, that the level of religious observance has gone down over the years. And you're seeing a lot more conflict between what governments want to do and what people of all faiths want to do. And that's why I'm saying we're going to keep an eye on this because it is critically important uh, to protect this right. There is another article in the New York Times that I think is very interesting. It's called An Extraordinary Winning Streak for Religion at the Supreme Court. Subtitle, more broadly, one new study found the politicization of religious freedom has infiltrated every level of the federal judiciary. Now, if you read this article, it makes the point based on this study that the um, the Supreme Court, it says, led by Chief Justice Earl Warren from 1953 to 1969, supported religion just 46% of the time. It grew to 51% under Chief Justice Warren E. Berger, and then 58% under Chief Justice William Rehnquist from 1986 to 2005, and now it's 81% under Chief Justice Roberts, who joined the court in 2005. And it says, the kinds of cases the court is hearing have changed. In the Warren court, all the rulings in favor of religion benefited minority or dissenting practitioners. In the Roberts court, most of the religious claims were brought by mainstream Christians which I think is an important thing to talk about the demographics of the United States and religious practice. I think why you're seeing so many more cases that involve so-called mainstream or Orthodox Christians is because the demographics have shifted. Christians make up a smaller percentage of the American population. And if you take into account how often they attend whatever religious services their faith offers, it drops even more the percentage. And then you have seen lots of huge cultural shifts, in particular where the Supreme Court has held things as rights that are not actually in the literal text of the Constitution that come into direct conflict with mainstream religious practices of of Islam, of Judaism, of Christianity. And you are seeing that there's going to be more friction between government regulation and adherence of religious faith. 
And it's interesting. I don't know if this study is right. It's not. It would be very time intensive to try and figure that out. Uh, And I'm not sure that that their point in saying it is trying to say that it's bad that the Supreme Court is protecting religious faith 81% now when in the 1950s it was only protecting it 40% of the time. And I think people actually would prefer that the Supreme Court protects religious faith. And yet this article talks about so-called politicization of religious freedom. And the article says, the survey says, a big partisan gap has opened up in free exercise clauses, cases. Judges appointed by Democrats sided with religion 10% of the time in such cases in the last five years compared with 49% for ones appointed by Republicans and 72% for ones named by President Donald Trump. And they, the writers of this article want you to be upset about this <clears throat> And it says this further thing, through the end of last year, not a single judge appointed by Democrats sided with religion in those cases related to COVID-19 restrictions, while 66% of judges appointed by Republicans and 82% of judges appointed by Mr. Trump did. They're saying this is a bad thing. They're using this to... uh, bludgeon justices and judges appointed by President Trump. And yet, what is the role of a judge if not to protect our fundamental rights? And that is what Mr. Trump promised. That is what President Trump delivered. And that is what his voters wanted. And when you see all of the serious cultural battles we have going on right now, is it any surprise that we are going to continue to have this conflict and the Biden administration and the far left, they want to make the Supreme Court a super legislature to ram through their policy preferences, not only where they can't get it through the local governments, but they want it Uh, centralized in Washington, D.C., so that Texas can't be Texas and Iowa can't be Iowa, but that there would be this uniformity across the country. And it's sad. It's really sad that the left and Democrats don't understand why our country is so amazing and why we have been so free and so prosperous. It is because of a respect for individual freedoms. And the First Amendment is really at the First Amendment, the Second Amendment right to keep and bear arms. That is at the core of who individual people are and what they represent and how they're able to live their lives and negotiate their uh, communities and their families. And so I just find it to be very sad that the left and the Democrats are proud that Judges appointed by Democrats have sided with religion, supposedly, however you want to characterize that, only 10%. That is very, very sad. And I'm going to keep on this. I'm going to keep you informed about this. And I hope you will subscribe to this podcast. I hope you'll go over to YouTube, subscribe to my YouTube channel, follow me on Twitter, Like me on Facebook, check out my Instagram, 
And please comment on my website, gailtrotter.com, if you have any feedback on these issues that I've raised, other topics you would like me to cover, and anything else that's on your mind. And thank you so much for joining me. It was great to talk with you.